0: The Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com/podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is the Daily 202 for Monday, September 14th. In today's news, dense smoke smothers the Pacific Northwest, hindering firefighting efforts. Trump appointees seek greater control over CDC reports about the coronavirus. And a postcard gets delivered to a home in Michigan a hundred years after it was sent. But first, the big idea. Shortly before President Trump took the stage late Sunday night in Henderson, Nevada, for his first indoor rally in months, Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak blasted the president for flouting his state's coronavirus restrictions. Sisolak, a Democrat, said Trump and his campaign were violating Nevada's ban on gatherings of 50 people or more. He called the rally, quote, shameful, dangerous, and irresponsible. Most in the crowd did not wear masks. The exceptions were the people sitting right behind Trump on stage. The campaign asked them to wear masks so that it would appear on television like the crowd was complying with the guidelines. This happened as the United States inches closer to almost 200,000 dead from COVID-19. It was the president's first indoor rally since that ill-fated June gathering in Tulsa. A top state health official later said that that Oklahoma rally more than likely contributed to Tulsa County's surge in cases. Herman Cain, the former pizza executive and presidential candidate, was hospitalized with COVID less than two weeks after attending that Tulsa rally, which featured several thousand people, most of whom did not wear masks, including Cain. Cain died of the virus on July 30th. The rally last night was held at Extreme Manufacturing, an industrial facility, Kathleen Richards, a spokeswoman for the city of Henderson, told reporters that the city issued verbal and written warnings to extreme manufacturing about social distancing restrictions and threatened the company with a citation and the loss of its business license if it went ahead with the rally. Donna Hearn, the owner of that venue, told the Las Vegas Review-Journal that the state already fined him nearly $11,000 last month for failing to follow its COVID policies after he held a Trump campaign event And a beauty pageant attended by hundreds of people at the hotel that he owns on the Strip. During Trump's 70 minute speech, the president blasted Sisalak as a political hack, adding, If the governor comes after you, I'll be with you all the way. Jonathan Reiner, a professor of medicine and surgery at George Washington University, likened Trump's decision on CNN to hold this Nevada rally to negligent homicide. Trump campaign spokesman Tim Murtaugh. Rejected any criticism, issuing a statement that said, quote, "If you can join tens of thousands of people protesting in the streets, gamble in a casino, or burn down small businesses in riots, you can gather peacefully under the First Amendment to hear from the President of the United States." Trump will also hold a campaign event this evening in Arizona aimed at Latinos. He will do so as Latino groups are warning that Biden, Joe Biden's sluggish outreach to their voters, could hurt him in November. Recent polls showing Trump's inroads with Latinos have set off a fresh round of frustration and finger-pointing among Democrats, confirming problems some say have simmered for months. Many Latino activists and officials say Biden is now playing catch-up, particularly in the pivotal state of Florida, where he will campaign on Tuesday for the first time as the Democratic nominee. Sean Sullivan reports that reaching out to Latino voters will be a key focus on that visit, Biden's campaign says he'll go to Tampa and Kissimmee, two areas with large Puerto Rican populations. Adding to Biden's challenge in Florida, a must-win state for Trump, is the complexity of the Hispanic population there, where the president is quite popular among conservative Cuban Americans. And Mike Bloomberg, the former New York City mayor and billionaire, announced on Sunday that he will spend at least a hundred million dollars to help Biden in Florida between now and the election. The former Democratic presidential candidate made the decision to focus his spending on Florida last week after news reports said that Trump is considering spending as much as $100 million of his own money in the final stretch of the campaign. And another former Biden rival for the nomination, Bernie Sanders, has been privately expressing concern that Biden is running a lackluster campaign and is not paying enough attention to the progressive liberal grassroots. Sanders is urging Biden's team to intensify its focus on pocketbook issues and spend more time appealing to the left. The Vermont senator has been telling associates that Biden is at serious risk of coming up short in the November election if he continues with his vaguer, more centrist approach. The senator has identified several specific changes he'd like to see, and he's told the Biden operation that the candidate needs to talk more about health care and about his economic plans to recover from covid He's also said that Biden should be campaigning more with figures popular among young liberals, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the New York congresswoman. A fresh Fox News poll shows Biden ahead of Trump nationally by five points, which is just outside the margin of error. The election is seven weeks from tomorrow. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one. Massive clouds of smoke from the Pacific Northwest wildfires lingered over the region on Sunday, posing serious health risks for millions of people and complicating firefighting efforts, even as crews reported progress in slowing some of the blazes. The air quality across Oregon was listed as hazardous or very unhealthy by state environmental officials, and a dense smoke advisory from the National Weather Service remains in effect for much of the state until this afternoon. Oregon officials said Sunday evening that crews are struggling to contain more than 30 fires still raging. One of them stretches more than 55 miles wide, part of a burned area larger than Rhode Island. Similar warnings about smoke were in place from California to Washington state. In San Francisco, residents were advised to remain indoors and block air from seeping into their homes. In Seattle, the air quality index topped 200, the level considered very unhealthy. The thick haze smothering the landscape has deepened the crisis brought on by the blazes, which officials have now linked to at least 10 deaths in Oregon, as dozens more remain missing. My colleagues Derek Hawkins, Samantha Schmidt, and Steve Mufson report that there are some hopeful signs. The high-speed winds have mostly abated, and because the smoke is blocking the sunlight, that's lowering temperatures to the low 50s. That's well below normal, and lower temperatures slow the spread of the fires. There's also Fingers crossed, a chance of rain on Tuesday. But people are still suffering and the forests are still burning. In California, record-shattering wildfires have charred more than 3.2 million acres and counting. They've been linked to 24 deaths there since last month. Three of the top four California wildfires are still burning right now, according to the state. And in Washington, blazes have burned more than 665,000 acres and clogged the skies with smoke as well. Trump is slated to visit California for about two hours today. Aside from a Friday night tweet thanking first responders for their work, the president has said little publicly about the blazes that have wiped out entire neighborhoods and towns and destroyed vast tracts of land. Number two, political appointees at the Department of Health and Human Services have sought to change, delay, and prevent the release of reports about the coronavirus by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, because they were viewed as undermining Trump's message that the pandemic is under control. Michael Caputo, the top spokesman for HHS, said in an interview this weekend with my colleague Lena Sun that he and one of his advisors have been seeking greater scrutiny of the CDC's weekly scientific dispatches known as the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report for the past three and a half months. The other advisor, Paul Alexander, has sent repeated emails to scientists at the CDC seeking changes and demanding that the reports be halted until he can make edits. The emails, which were first reported late Friday night by Politico, describe the CDC documents, known widely as the MMWR, as being hit pieces on the administration. Caputo, who was a senior official on Trump's 2016 campaign, confirmed the authenticity of these emails when he talked to Lena. The thing is, These MMWRs are written by career experts for scientists and public health specialists. They're considered the most authoritative public health reports that the federal government puts out because they provide evidence-based information on a range of health topics. These reports are independent scientific publications that undergo rigorous vetting, often with several drafts and lots of backstops to check data and methodology. One CDC report that drew particular scrutiny from the Trump people was on hydroxychloroquine. The MMWR urged clinicians to follow long-accepted prescribing guidelines for the malaria drug. Trump favored that drug as a coronavirus treatment despite scant evidence that it was effective. The report was delayed for several weeks. In another instance, a report about the spread of the coronavirus at a Georgia sleepaway camp was also delayed. Inside sources tell Lena that this was done to avoid releasing the document at a time that Trump was pushing schools to reopen for in-person learning. The interference by HHS political appointees in the MMWR process has infuriated career scientists who have grown increasingly frustrated over the last several months over the inability to allow scientists to do their jobs to fully share and explain information. In more positive news, the vaccine trial in the UK has resumed after a week-long pause caused by an illness in one of the participants. The recommendation to resume human testing of the vaccine candidate being developed by Oxford University and the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca was made by an independent safety review committee and the UK health regulator. Carolyn Johnson reports that authorities made no further information available about the nature of the illness in the one participant, citing privacy protections. Number three, this is a fun one. When Brittany Keach. Checked her mailbox last Tuesday in Belding, Michigan. It was flooded with the usual junk. But on top of the pile of miscellaneous flyers, political pamphlets, and bills, sat something that caught her eye. A tattered, and time worn postcard. She spotted a faded, green, one-cent stamp with George Washington's face on it and a postmark that said October 29th, 1920. On the front of the postcard is a Halloween illustration, including a black cat, pumpkins, a witch, an owl, and a broomstick. The postcard was addressed to a Roy McQueen. The letter starts, Dear Cousins, We are quite well, but Mother has awful lame knees. It is awful cold here. And the note ends with, Don't forget to write us. Followed by a question as to whether Roy got his pants fixed yet. The letter is signed by someone named Flossie Burgess. Sydney Page reports for the Post the incredible story of this letter's 100-year journey. Keach decided she would try to reunite that long-lost postcard with the family to whom it was originally intended. She posted on Facebook, and then others in her community of 6,000 residents joined the search. The public librarian is into genealogy as a hobby, Looking through the 1920 census, he discovered a Roy McQueen who once lived at the same address. He found that McQueen, who was originally from Canada and moved to the United States in 1887, was married to a Nora Murdoch. At the time the letter was sent, he was working as the manager of a produce company. Cheryl Ackerman, also an amateur genealogist in the community, loves trying to solve mysteries. So she got to work too, and she was able to track down the grandniece of Roy and Nora. She connected the grandniece with Brittany, who had received the postcard, The two of them are now setting up a time to meet. And while the puzzle of who wrote the note has now been solved, what remains in question is how it ended up in a mailbox almost exactly 100 years after it was written. In this case, the delivery had nothing to do with politics. A mail carrier in Michigan said her best guess is that the postcard got stuck behind a baseboard, a crack in the floor, or a piece of machinery in an old post office that was recently renovated, A spokeswoman for the Postal Service said what's more likely is that someone purchased the postcard at a flea market, an antique shop, or online, and then just re-entered it into the mail system. As a policy, so long as there's a deliverable address and postage, the card or letter will get delivered. Still, we may never know if Roy did, in fact, get his pants fixed. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, September 14th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.